Welcome to another episode of Fight the Burnout. Uh, so today we have a, um, a paramedic, oh, well, ex-paramedic. He's just recently stopped uh, practicing as such, um, but he was frontline for 20 years uh, and then, uh, but has been actually, you know, having his fingers in the in the pie as such uh, for the last 40 years. He now also works and does stuff with um, physical and mental um, wellness uh, and first aid. Uh, it's called Four Pillars Wellness. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're going to hear all about it, uh, but Graham has got a very, um, a very impactful story. So we're going to, we're going to hear about that here in a second. Um, when I heard about it, he's also, um, related to a very good friend of mine. Uh, so I'm, I'm very intrigued. So Graham, why don't you take it away, uh, and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your journey to, to getting to where you are now. Uh, sure. It's an way, everyone. Um, yeah, it's, it's. Uh, thanks for the intro. Um, yeah, I'm uh, related to your good friend. I'm his uncle. Always good friends, but always good to have uh, family members um, around. So, um, yeah. so I uh, look. It's a long. Uh, it's kind of an interesting, not interesting. I was born and raised in Auckland um, in the uh, in the sixties, and um, I didn't know at the time. But I never passed the test of school in my life or anything like that. And ultimately, uh, left school just after I was, or just before I was 15, to become a panel beater of all things. Yeah. But when I was a young fella, I and my auntie, like you say, that I always wanted to be a policeman, a fireman, or an ambulance one. And I think that became from my, my grandfather, who passed away when I was 10, we used to sit in his garden, him and I, and peel um, carrots and eat them. He used to be a cleaner come. Uh, morning tea kind of person at the St. John headquarters in Rutland Street. Yeah. Um, and he died when I was 10, but I think, I can't remember the conversations, but I, I kind of, I think that's where the connection started to, to come from. And here's an exceptionally personal, all amazing man, went to the First World War, wounded three times, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and um, so I started my, I did my panel beating trade. One, first one in my family, I did an overseas, an OE. Um, and a uh, camping tour. Came back, got married, and um, 1981, um, uh, an opportunity came up to join the ambulance service in Auckland. Mm. The um, part about that was that you had to be 25, and I was only 23. Um, so um, friends and that said, "Look, just keep applying." By the time they, by the time you're 25, they would have got sick of your employer. <laughs> they, yeah, so anyway, I, um, I, I applied when I was 23, um, and three months later, I started in May 1981, I started my career as an ambulance um, officer in Auckland. So um, that's where, it, that's kind of where my career started. Um, it was the early days in National Ambulance Officers Training School and so on, so everybody went through that. Um, a, a lot of uh, volunteer ambulance officers, so the paid staff were only really starting to develop yeah. also at that time the intake of for Auckland ambulance at the time I was the there were five of us we were the last all-male intake there were no female ambulance officers at that stage 1981 now I think it's 60 40 60 female 40 percent um, Auckland but at that stage it was a completely male dominated industry yeah um, I spent about three years in Auckland and had an opportunity to, um, to 
and very competitive in, that, in Auckland to further qualifications. They had to work and then apply to do further qualifications. Really competitive. Um, and a role came up in a place called Colverton in North Canterbury and sole charge. Yeah. I applied for that again, not thinking I'd get it um, and got it. Um, so we moved to Colverton um, mid 80s and that was um, baptism by fire from an ambulance point of view. So in Auckland, the largest ambulance service in New Zealand, lots of um, uh, uh, colleagues, lots of people to to bounce ideas off, and here I was in the largest area for one ambulance um, in New Zealand. And so you learned a lot very quickly because you were it. There's no one to call on. No, no cell phones, no helicopters, anything like that. You you were it. Um, so and loved the community, loved the people there. But then to further your career to become an advanced paramedic, so I went through the next level and then became a want to become an advanced paramedic. I um, um, was invited to go to Christchurch, um, so I worked frontline in Christchurch another few years, and then was um, offered a position at the National Ambulance Officers Training School as an instructor for all ambulance personnel in Central North Island, so oh, wow. below Mumbai's hills and Auckland, <clears throat> and a line across Lake Taupo, all the way across the east and west coast. Yeah, and love that job. It was um, and, and a lot of work with volunteer ambulance personnel throughout the country. Um, also did some training with advanced paramedic courses in Auckland um, and also did a, a qualification as a adult and tertiary educator because you're part of the Auckland University of Technology. They changed the training system about four years after that and it became full polytech. So we were made redundant. Mm. Um, during that time, I'd, I'd got my advance. I was an advanced paramedic. So um, I ended up in Dunedin, which is the only place I could get a job at that level, because at that time, only so many paramedics best service and so on. Yeah. Um, and that was in Dunedin. So I went to Dunedin as an advanced life support paramedic, aeromedical specialist, NDQA assessor, mentor, at, at Esquire, Dipstick and Bar. Um, and did frontline work there, and also as a mentor and um, assessor for NCQA. Um, as you do with any career, you have your ups and downs, and um, and so on. So, the time I was in Dunedin, uh, I, was I was divorced, um, had three boys. Um, they can't, sometimes I'd live with us in Dunedin, and so on. But uh, it, wasn't until um yeah so there's as you know lots goes on during your career yeah a lot of what went on during my career my um was because um it was so competitive to get various roles one of the things so if you could all pass the exams it really just came down to whether or not you were suitable for one of better word or the chief ambulance officer or even in wellington freeze days they drew straws go to advanced paramedic level so um i had all through my career had been experiencing these kind of um jobs that i've been to which you know particularly i particularly struggled with mm. and um dead people were easy for me yeah irrespective of the damage done to them because i had no input they were already deceased yeah the inputs that I had that created my problems were, were people who um, 
who I had engaged with at, at and you can't help it at an emotional level. So I did everything I could to save their life, but they ultimately died. So you engage with them all their families. Um, and way back um, in about 1982, I had my first, what we what you'd call it, first identifiable period of what we'd now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And it was a woman who, I went to a house fire on my own, especially my own injuries, and a woman was a burnt, was on the ground, wrapped up in a blanket, and she was 100% burnt from a house fire. Still conscious, talking to me. Um, I was sent because there's no one else available, so you're on your own. Um, and, uh, and so she was talking to me, I was talking to her, and I had to pick her up to put her on a stretcher, but you can't use a normal metal stretcher. So I had to pick her up in my arms and all her skin and everything came off in my arms and stuff and put her on the stretcher. While she was on the stretcher, while I was waiting for assistance to come and keeping a call. A police officer came, tapped me on the shoulder and asked to go with him. And I'm like, oh, busy right now. And he said, no, you have to come. Uh, initially, it was a minor injury call. Um, I went into the um, hallway of the house that was burnt, and um, there was a, a, a body of a, of a teenage boy, her, her brother, who was deceased. And they then went through there, because our job was to um, confirm life extinct. Yeah. Um, and then I went through to another room, which was obviously a bedroom, and um, there was the remnants of a cot and a baby. So I went, so, and, you know, life extinct. So I went back to her and she, you know, I'd been away and came back and she said to me, Graham, where's my baby? How's my baby? I knew she was going to die. Mm. So those are the kind of things that challenge you for the rest of your life. Do you tell the truth or you lie? Mm. Those kind of things. So that was my first real experience. And from that, for example, um, uh, whenever I smell, um, uh, say, mutton cooking, and I can't go to somebody who's cooking mutton because that smell mm. triggers me straight back. So my experiences are real time, and I experience the emotions I wasn't allowed to experience at the time. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Makes total sense. Been there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and throughout the throughout um, the career, all there were lots and lots of similar incidences. Yeah. So while I was in um, in Otago, um, and uh, and as things happen, um, as they do, lots of things all occurred at the same time. That um, and um, the partner who had who, who I had time um, decided to run off as a firefighter, and um, the uh, chief ambulance officer at the time. Um, is sort of inappropriate stuff going on, and we we had some conflicts and. One of the interesting things was that there were only two of us that were NZQA assessors. So a lot of volunteers would do their training um, and then have to come and work with an advanced paramedic or an assessor. Yeah. And the thing for them is they'd come from the rural areas. I've never been worked in an ambulance service and I'd see more on a shift than I'm probably likely to see in two or three years. So they yeah. hunt for it. We'd love to have them and they were the chief ambulance officer, um, we had about 70 plus people to go through and we're and the two of us and we approached the chief ambulance officer we need more assessors mm. 
And he, he said, no, no, we don't. What I'm going to do, he says, I'm just, because he had ultimate, he was going to sign them all off. That's having completed. And I said, well, you're taking away a critical part of their development and everything else. So we had those kind of conflicts and stuff like that. And I got, with everything else happening, um, I had been depressed before, but um, I knew I was um, um, really depressed at the time. So um, I... Um, I resigned in the role, but was asked not to resign. A number of things occurred that ended up that um, ended up um, that I couldn't continue anymore in that, at working in that particular role. Um, and um, so, one one in one way, I was getting a message saying, "Take your holidays, get get well, then come back." And then another one was a trespass notice. So, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I can't go into the details, but that became a long, drawn out battle with between myself and the Order of St. John, which we um, finally agreed at. Um, but, uh, but what eventuated involved out of that um, was, uh, and I developed some other interests and things, just to, uh, obviously. Uh, and one day um, I got a um, a letter from the lawyer that was acting for me asking me for more money and that was a trigger for my death and in the same way that when you're trying to resuscitate somebody and you, you're not successful and a family or somebody would say are you sure there's nothing more you can do right mm -hmm. are you sure there's nothing more to do for me and many many others they had, I had given them everything I had. I had nothing else. Yeah. But the other side of that, and, and just as I read later, but I didn't realize at the time that I was dyslexic. Yeah. Even wondered why they, they, they spell dyslexic in a way that dyslexics can't spell it. <laughs> I always wondered that. It's, it's... <laughs> why, why if you've got a lisp, they spell lisp with an S. Yeah, why don't they give you something easy to do? But, um, so, um, and I didn't find that out till, until I was about 50, but so when I joined the ambulance services to pass a test, um, I was petrified because I don't read or anything else like that. Mm -hmm. So I met an old, uh, one of the old ambulance officers there said, don't worry, Graham, all you have to do is write an answer on every question, spell drug names correctly, there is a mark if you don't spell, and they had 10 to a false questions, right? So. If you run out of time, just took one side or the other because you'll either get six marks or four marks. Right? So exam technique. So I use that and I write as I speak. Yeah. So, uh, a one-hour paper would take me 15 minutes and I'd be finished. Yeah. And I'd be reading it because I didn't make any sense. All I'd look at is had I spelled the drug name correctly, was there an answer on every question? I'd take one side. And because um, anatomy and physiology and all that other kind of stuff, just came easy you know yeah. so i always got enough marks to pass um and uh, i actually got 80 one day which i was overwhelmed with but <laughs> got enough marks to pass most of the time i was bottom of the class um thinking in the advanced paramedic you know um uh, academically or from written you know but always top of the class practical yeah and i maintain that Patients don't want to know whether I've got a certificate that says passed with distinction because I've got 100 or not. So no. that was my, um, so 
um, that's how I got through all the about all the all the papers and um, and um, all, all the written stuff. Um, and so while people were studying anatomy and physiology and going through that, I was just writing out adrenaline a hundred times or lignocaine or something, so it looked correct. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> I don't know how it all evolved. But anyway, I'm a, a long story short. So then I, um, so I received, so for, for someone like myself, to get better was quite a struggle, if that makes sense. But yeah. Better for the next one, for the next one, for the next one. So this particular letter, uh, this letter arrived, it was asking me to provide something that I didn't have. Does not make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Got everything that I have. Yeah this case so you've got all the money that i have in the same way that you've had all the skills or things i can possibly put together as, as uh, in my role and it was a trigger um and i spent the next 24 hours planning my death wow and simply because all the distress everything else is that i believed that i was creating all these problems for those people that were around me all the distress and all the, all those kind of things and having to spend money on all of those kind of factors. So it was very clear in my mind when I made the decision, I was best I felt great is that by um, by me not being there, by taking my own life, I would be able to help all these other people. Mm. That makes sense. So yeah, I can talk about that. Um, so um, so I spent the 20, next 24 hours um, planning my death as a, as a paramedic. I'm about to, I knew how how to do it and not survive. So um, it was, um, oh, I can't, I, the sensation is unbelievable when my first waking moment was an in intensive care. Mm. And I just remember opening eyes and it was very, very bright, very white light bright. And um, I can really recall saying to myself, kind of, oh shit, so this is what it's like to be dead. They hadn't been dead before, so you don't know what to expect. Because I had no expectation that I'd be alive. The next waking moment, I was surrounded by white all up around my head, and that, and it was still very white all up around my head. <clears throat> Julie, who's now my wife, together twenty plus years, and my oldest son were looking down at me, and I thought I must be in my coffin. The white. You know how you think of it? Yeah. I was convinced I was in my coffin. I had no concept that I had lived, none whatsoever. So it took me, I went from there to medical ward and to mental health ward. It took me um, weeks to even comprehend that I'd lived. And then what do I do now? Because there were no plans, no nothing. That was. Um, so from there, it was. Um, uh, you know about fight and flight yeah <clears throat> well I, I i can now explain that i was in a primal response for weeks yep. it was demonstrated when a nurse came to me one day it was after being four or five six weeks and was like graham you haven't filled out your menu planner you know you've got to tickle the, what you like to eat and i told her very politely um that what she could do with that menu planner and the pen and everything else and told her to get out of the room um, the afternoon nurse came on, who, who I knew from the ambulance, um, came on and said, Graham, what's going on? And I said, about this, and I've regressed and all the notes I've regressed and I've become really aggressive and all that kind of stuff. And, I, yep. and she said, that's not you at all. And I said, well, it was as simple as this. 
he was asking me to make a decision about what to eat. I'm in such a state that I'm just making a decision about making a taking a breath. Yeah. So that was overwhelming for me it was because you're in that primal state. I just couldn't answer that question, and it was nonsensical. They put yeah. food in front of me. I ate it. I couldn't tell yeah. you what. It was. Yeah. Face is the primal response, right? So I'd eat it. They'd ask me to go and have a shower. So would you like to go and have a shower? And I always say no. Yeah, they if they asked you a question, it was no, no, no. If they told me to go and have a shower, I'd go and have a shower. Yeah. So, um, so that's, um, so um, it was just a period of recovery and um, developed a, a blog, developed a marabino consultancy, developed a business, a business model which I'd started beforehand, uh, the accountant that we're with said to uh, I don't worry, I'll look after all your business stuff for you, you don't need to worry. Um, after after having to pay back a whole lot of money to the bank and increasing our mortgage because we couldn't work out what was going on, it turned out about two or three years later that he had stolen about $40 million of us. So you got thrown even more stuff. <laughs> so, um, basically, um, and even to the point of making donations to say the Suicide, Suicide Prevention Trust of New Zealand, which didn't exist. So narcissistic to the federal brain. So we found that out quite late. Um, and then the battle went about trying to get money back and rest it. So that, um, and he went to jail and we thought that all uh, um, But we just keep going. And then, um, uh, uh, then I, there was a role I saw in a, a role in a, in a, in a Target Day Times, a consumer advisor for mental health must have the lived experience of mental illness, preferably with some adult education background. And I go, that's me, because I'd, I'd, uh, I'd been working as a car salesman, the only job I could get, used car salesman, you know, most trusted profession, down to the least trusted. <laughs> yeah. But that teaches a different thing. It's, it, you just do what you have to do. Yeah. So, um, so I applied for this job and had no idea what it was. I applied for it and long story short, I got offered the job. Then I tried to think, what does a consumer advisor look like? Um, and my imagery, and I've, I've spoken to um, uh, uh, in various forums that, uh, and put a picture up, is that I would turn up to work wearing, uh, wearing a safari suit with a whole lot of dreadlocks. That's my image of what that role was and what it is it's a, a role where you're taking your lived experience and your other 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 knowledges and things and working with the um the team with the managers of mental health and providing a, a perspective from the lived experience oh interesting so uh, the lived experience really came from uh, work that i developed uh, as opposed to consumer so um, and then they, so I started that role, and about after six months, they had, they had a national organisation that I got. You had to go to national advisors, uh, called NAMSA, uh, National Association of Consumer Advisors. Um, I went to this meeting and heard all sorts of um, stories about how they got each other's throats. Anyway, I went to the went to this meeting, morning tea, had lunch, and after two days, afternoon after afternoon break, I was a bit later back, can't remember why, and they voted me chairperson. In my absence, and it's like everything else. It's okay. You can either say like, uh, when I was learning to um, ice skate or ski, you either hold on to the wall 
and you could push yourself off and go for it, right? And if yeah. I Alexia, the Alexia, I was um, secretary of the, um, the Institute of Ambulance Officers, for example. So I put myself in positions to try and yeah. what it really was. So that's, so um, yeah, so I may be chairperson and, and then, uh, so after about, over that six year period, within the first year I was doing, uh, working with, also with the Mental Health Commission, also worked um, uh, other organisations, um, and then I was asked to go and do a similar role with the Australasian College of Psychiatrists, Australia and New Zealand, which got the mental health suite, and then do presentations and go to conferences and that kind of stuff. And so my personality, and I was on a committee, one of the committees I was on was uh, the Therapeutic and Evidence-Based Practice Committee, right? So I said, well, you know, and I kind of understood what it was. And so we changed its name uh, from my perspective. Let's call it the What Works Committee, right? <laughs> that's what it's really about, right? Yeah. But um, but in that role, you'd get a lot of documents and ask you for, for opinions of. And that's when I learned of my dyslexia. Yeah. I just thought it was stupid. Um, or just, but so they could give me very big documents and very, very quickly I could find that find out what it was that I needed to, to relate to. Yeah. So, uh, and that's kind of apparently what I can do is you give me a big document, say, oh, look, this is what we want to know. And I go, oh, and I can find it and, and articulate it. Yeah. Um, and, and interestingly enough, the Auckland University of Technology earlier on asked me to teach it. And I said, well, if you, I knew what you're talking about, I would, but I had no idea that that's what it was. So, so I still don't read and I can't spell. Um, and I do, and I try and, um, yeah, and I, I write as I speak. Yeah. So makes uh, total well, sense. I, I've got, I've got a bit of dyslexia as well. So it's the same thing. I actually prefer audiobooks. Yeah. I, when I write as, as if I'm speaking, uh, yeah, it's, just, it yeah, it and it works. works. You just do what works for you. Graham, I want to I want to grab on a few things before we jump into kind of really in depth on how you kind of help people in that now. Um, so you woke up, you went through all, you know, getting getting better in that. I know because I'm ex police officer, so the amount of times that I've been to people that have tried to commit suicide or have you know seriously attempted to high levels multiple times, what stopped you from going down that road again? Um. That's, uh, that's an almost impossible question for me to, uh, when you asked me and you wrote to me about that question, what stops me? All, all I can go back to, and, and say, and this is what we do in the psychological first aid program. We describe, or I describe suicide as an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Yeah. Right? So for me to manage, I, I still become hopeless but I avoid the overwhelmingness. That makes sense? Makes total sense. So, um, and that's where we talk, and, and uh, we thought, it's not talking about suicide has not worked. We know that for a fact, right? So, um, so I, I would um, talk or challenge or um, find other things in the same way that parents might tell their, their kids, their teenagers, suicide's not a choice, right? As opposed to saying suicide is a choice, but before you choose that, here are other choices. 
Yeah. The moment you cut off the conversation, there are no other choices can be involved. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. A youth who says, don't even think about suicide, it's not an option, it's not a choice. Well, in actual fact, it is a choice because we can all choose that. Yeah. So we come from the whole premise of saying, accept it as being a choice or mental distress is a choice. It's where you're at, right? Yeah. Talk about it and then evolve something to add other choices. Yeah. It doesn't stop you from um, being... feeling hopeless yeah and what it does help prevent is the overwhelmingness of it yeah i don't think i've become overwhelmed but from that day that i i, I nightmare every night probably once or twice a night still um, i have regular and, and sometimes hurt, um uh, thoughts of um, suicide regularly are still very prevalent, still there, there's still an option. But I guess it's not becoming overwhelmed with them. So now yeah. I kind of let them wash over. Yeah. So I experience the emotions and stuff like that. And as we talk about on our program, for me, that's a normal response to the situations I've, I've been in. Yeah. A normal response. Hmm. We take that back. Sadness is a normal response to an abnormal situation. Why the hell we've, we've been driving it as depression is, again, what we're trying to break down. Because sadness is a normal process. Yep. You need to go through that sadness. It's not suddenly depression that needs fixing. It doesn't need fixing. Anxiety does not need fixing. It's our survival response. But now, because people are anxious, you know, COVID, of course they are because it's our survival response. Yeah. Well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, anxiety is a fear. It's a survival response to a fear that we have. It's a, it's a survival response, full stop. Yeah. Effectively, it's a fear or a challenge or whatever it is. It's a survival response. And we generate that. The whole point of generating that survival response is to seek opportunities to survive. Yeah. If only we can, depression and, and, and what they call generalized anxiety disorders are when they become to a point they're interfering dramatically in your day to day life. Yeah. Other than that, they are normal responses to abnormal situations. So it's actually very, very, very normal and, and exceptionally important that we are, we are anxious about what's happening with COVID, just as an example. Yeah. Because that enables us to survive it. Yeah. It enables us to be able to figure out how to protect ourselves. <laughs> and and they're all different for each individual. Yep. So, and that's exactly what it's about. So so from that day on, from um, I accept that this is my illness for going to be in the same way I've had a cardiac arrest. How did you accept that? Well, I, I accept that in the same way. If I was a medical terminology, like medical, I had a cardiac arrest in 2001, ended up in intensive care, can't do the job I love anymore, et cetera, et cetera, right? And for the rest of my life, I'll have to take medications to help manage it. And if I overdo it, I'll get another heart attack, which would kill me. Agree? Yeah. Concept. Yep. I didn't have a heart attack. I took my own life. Yeah. And I ended up in intensive care and I'm on medication for the rest of my life. And if I allow it to, and I don't manage it, it will kill me. They're exactly the same. 
Yep. Yep. Totally. What made you want to manage it? What made you want to manage it? Um, that's a really good question. I, I guess unfinished business. Uh -huh. How'd you come to awareness of that? Well, I don't think it, it, um, I've never had a light bulb moment. Okay. I've never had a light bulb moment. And I guess, um, people put, it might be this thing called resilience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, 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 I believe, you know, first responders, especially, and this is why, you know, this year uh, we're interviewing just first responders at the moment instead of normal, because I'm like, first responders have, are some of the most resilient people in the world because we see and deal with some of the most traumatic things. Uh, and so we can, we can overcome things if we want to. No, I, I wouldn't say that if we want to, it's not, not how I would. Yeah, I guess that's probably the wrong language. Um, I knew the answers all the time. Right? Yeah. Not my career. I wasn't allowed to. Hmm. Not Why do you say you weren't allowed to? Well, to be the best I could be, all right, and competing with everybody else, the last thing I wanted anybody to, to even consider that I was struggling with mm -hmm. some of the jobs I went to. Yeah. Remember this and go on organization and those, it's a military based organization. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could pass the tests and do the job, the next level would be, and, and, um, there was no doubt that many people I worked with, if they said, oh, Graham's struggling a bit, they were gone straight to the chief ambulance officer. He, he won't make a very good advanced paramedic, right? Because yeah, the, the competitive side, yeah. To get better. So, and that's, and that, no matter whether it's a police, fire service, business, or anything else, not being allowed to accept that, yeah. um, that that's how you feel the emotion of what's going on and deal with that emotion. So essentially, we'll take that first one that I talked about, another one builds, another one builds, another one builds, and it just keeps building to the point you become overwhelmed with solutions. Does that make sense? Yep. Never been allowed to devolve um, what was happening to you in, in a way that was useful. So even now, that in the latest research, um, critical incident um, distress briefing are now have now been proven to cause more damage than good. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And it is that, because I always I always found like with myself when we did and when we did a briefing where we were I guess that's this is the difference where we we were expected and asked to um, talk about our emotions and what we went through. We were actually, I actually felt better afterwards because I was like, oh, I actually felt accepted by my guy, my team because they weren't in that thing of where they yep. and what the cut, cut the feet out from underneath you. But there'll be others in that team that were unable to express their distress. Yeah. For whatever reason it may been, right? Or, or didn't feel, felt challenged by their role or whatever it might be. So they... They wouldn't. They would tell a story or whatever, and that's the that's the stuff that's come out is saying that that nobody will actually express what's really happening for them in a critical incident distress briefing scenario because um, because it doesn't have a script, which is what you started out with at the beginning of the day. It doesn't have a script, and if you're with your peers, do you really want you know, uh, judgment or all that sense of judgment? If you're um, just 
hypothetically or female in a male dominated um, arena and the, a particular job and in, critical incident um, you, you felt more emotionally drained by that job just use that example yeah and I guarantee the males would crucify you see told you bloody woman shouldn't be in this and shouldn't be this and shouldn't be this and shouldn't be this. yeah so they wouldn't why would they any more than why would I they they, they started doing um, uh, enabling counseling um, for ambulance officers when I was in Chicago but to get it it had to have the chief ambulance officer's approval yeah we know that that to have anything like that it must be uh, anonymous and free and nobody should actually know it, they, they just pay the bill but he had to have well, who was it so what so what's the solution on that if it's not team involved getting you know having that camaraderie side of stuff where you trust each other and where you actually open up and is it just one-on-one -on -one anonymous uh, it's, it's, and that's what we're doing within the workplace and that with what we're doing is you, it's actually a cultural shift for one of better words. yeah it's understanding that if i come if i come to work feeling really crap because of what's happened at home with the kids and all the rest of that an example or i've been to a job that i that 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 i feel really challenged by that then the the that's why they used to fight each other far is the the whānau, the family, the community, so that's your, you might be in a fire is that you can just go, yeah. knowing that everybody else there is accepting that that is a normal response. Yeah, which is, which is what I was kind of saying before, is some of the units that I worked on, the ones that I felt I could do that, and I did do that are the ones that that's how we lived and that's how we were. It was okay to be not okay as, as the, as the, as the slogan goes. <laughs> Absolutely. But we don't, we're not that far down the track yet within the fire service and the police. Within the city. Oh, most, most areas you're, yeah, most areas you're not because there isn't that, that, that acceptance. The fire service do it better than probably anybody mm. of the groupings that they have. Oh. Rural firefighters do it exceptionally well because they're part of the community. And so on, and that's just kind of linking um, first responders and the same. But and just give an example: if a, 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 a firefighter in a rural community volunteer firefighter at a fire breaks their ankle, right? They have a physical injury. You'd agree with that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I know where you're going with this one. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so they have a physical injury. Um, this is where the four components come in, right? But, um. The, the psychological impacts of that are, are very profound. Yeah. Like for example, if he's a, a self-employed builder, how's he going to manage the job, all those other kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. to do things. If he's um, uh, um, a father and has kids, he's got that to process as well, 60% income at home, all the rest of it. The community side of it is he's letting down all his firefighter. I broke I broke my I broke my hand when I was on diplomatic protection and went through all of that. First thing that went in my head is how am I ever gonna shoot a gun again? And I went to worst case scenario because I was already in a mentally bad place. Went to worst case scenario, I'm not gonna be able to do this, I'm not gonna be able to do that, I'm gonna let these people down, I'm not gonna be able to make an income. All of it. Yeah. That's why what we what we've been driving and what we've been working on um, is that nothing happens in isolation so when we're doing physical first aid you need to understand and all of these factors come into play 
and that again is about so how do we how do we kind of deal with it was actually understanding and develop it there's a thing about knowledge understanding hmm. and acceptance first thing you need to do is um develop some knowledge yeah knowledge leads to some understanding right the understanding of a situation allows you and others to be tolerant yeah right? the final point is acceptance and the cool thing about acceptance is you don't have to agree oh. you have to agree whether um whether um people and the way they're living is right or not and mm-hmm. acceptance doesn't require that all acceptance is because you've got some knowledge and understanding you've developed some tolerance and they're okay uh, yeah. and um and that, that's the reason i think when you accept something you have to agree with it no you don't oh. it's actually been part of that and that's what makes up when we talk about again around um that that, that model that's a family whanau community acceptance right the inner self which is the first part or spiritual whatever you like your sense of self that's that's the enabling but it's just um actually i can accept them for, for what they're doing and all the rest of it that's that uh, and um we get on and do as opposed to trying to change them or whatever it is and that's um the interesting thing um going back my passion and my all that kind of stuff gets me into trouble right but after after my illness after my hospitalization when i was trying to trying to rebuild one of the things i learned that so one of the things i tried to do was change who i was right? mm. and i hated who i who i thought i was absolutely mm. hated which would mean i'd be dispassionate all those the opposites because that's yeah. how it seemed to be so again you asked me about acceptance when i accepted that this is who i am you're just who you are <laughs> so it's not a light bulb moment but it kind of fits what you asked me before so how do i manage it well the first thing was i tried to change all the behaviors and all of my thinking and that to prevent it from happening and it made me really unwell and really felt really yeah. and then the end i kind of threw up my arms in the background i'm just going to be who i'm going to be and i think i said to you that that saying what is so is so yeah that's where that comes from it's this is who i am that's a what is so is right so what is now now oh now i understand that now i can find ways to manage it as opposed to banging my head against the brick wall and yeah. right. trying to be something you're trying to be something you're not you know and i think that kind of correlates all into the whole thing of you know the culture shift and the culture change of yeah. you know yeah. first responders is you know and i know like as a young as a young officer you know i can relate to police because i've been one as a young police officer you come in there and you're like i have to be this way absolutely you do and and so you're trying to change yourself instead of just bringing you to the table into what you do you know and and this is what i coach a lot of people on is the the why or the purpose know that so you're strong in yourself because then what you do just feeds that yeah but it, it becomes a, a, a problem for yeah. people like yourself that have this passion when you can see something that is so for example the uh when i was uh, the reason i stopped being a consumer advisor was um a, we used to do i used to do um inquiries into deaths of patients who died while in our care hospital care even our patient and this woman took her own life while I was reading reports of it, I noticed that she'd been issued this drug called ketamine, which you're probably familiar with. Yep. <clears throat> and it's not a mental health drug. So I started to raise question, where does this ketamine come from as part of her treatment? And long story short, this is public knowledge, 
as Professor Paul Blue, who was head of the medical uh, thing, had um, been trialling ketamine, I should say novel use, of ketamine on patients with depression, outpatients with depression. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't ketamine. The fact was they didn't have informed consent. Yeah. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know. They didn't get a choice, and they didn't even know why, what, and where, and how. So that's where you get challenged. Do I do my job and lose my job, taking on a professor, or do I not do my job, which I'm talking about from a passionate point of view, about this is about um, patient treatment and care and all the rest of it. Do I not do it and keep my job? So that becomes a, a real conflict, right? So yeah, you're seeing it a lot in the last couple of years as well. So I took them off and with with the, and the community organization got them behind it. So I had the inside knowledge and it went on for a year and I was vilified and all that kind of stuff. And they kept changing, talking about ketamine and became an issue of ketamine. It was never about the drug. It could have been water for all I cared. Yeah. The fact was the people were being administered without their knowledge and without their consent. That goes against everything. So, so long story short, he got a slap on the wet, wet bus ticket because uh, all the QCs argued that it wasn't a trial and it wasn't off-label, it was a novel use. Uh, and so mm -hmm. he got a slap on the uh, wrist of the wet dust ticket by the Health and Disabilities Commission. That made it very difficult for me to do what I was going to continue to do. So, um, yeah, because you need that to be able to interact at that level. And so that's kind of, yeah. So that becomes a challenge, mm. whether you're in the police and the fire or whatever. Yeah, all of it does. If you see something that you know inherently within yourself is inappropriate or wrong, do you speak out or not? So you're holding it. It comes down to your values in that as well, because your passion. Absolutely, it does. And so, if you if you challenge your own values, and you, we were just talking about, you know, do you change your values to fit the mold, or do you find something else to do? Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. No, so oh, I, mean, I know, I know totally what you, I know totally what you mean because that's that's where I ended up a little bit in the end was some of I was like, why are we doing this? Is just wrong. Like these people are not, you know, the, my colleagues. I was like, these guys are not living what they said that why they said they do what they do, and yeah. it's it, you know, and then I'd see cops that were thirty plus years in and or had retired after thirty years, and I was like, I don't want to be that way, and wireless on, hang on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things. So how do you, how, you know, with what you guys do, how do you help people through that? Um, it seems essentially helping people just like the conversation we're having is we normalize is not the right word. Um, as we build that with it because we're done as a kind of uh, in the psychological first aid as an interactive process. Hmm. The first thing you'll get people to do is they write a, one or two questions I've always wanted to know on a piece of paper. Nobody knows I've asked a question, right? So we can answer those. Breakdown is myth breaking. Yeah. Then helping people to understand that, um, that most of what occurs, so it's earliest intervention, is normal. Hmm. So, if you understand what is normal in, a, in your own life, then you can understand then what abnormal may look like. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. 
but we have a society now that if you get sad and your know, people think they send you to the GP because you suddenly have depression, right? And then, and so it rolls on, and they research depression on Google and they might say, the same with anxiety and so many others. So part of what we do is, and that, well, it's not part of that, is break down those myths and help people understand in themselves, knowledge and understanding, right? Yeah. That um, these are the, the factors of, of who we are as human beings and why we, do, why we do that. But it's not something that needs fixing. The organization I've, I've been working with, Gallagher Bassett International, after the first lockdown, um, and the chief executive has written a thing about it, um, they, they had about 30, 40, 50 people in the office, came back into the office in central Auckland, all been working from home for weeks. He rang me and we had a conversation after the first week and she said, oh, Graham, you'll never beat the bitching, the carrying on, the backstabbing. You know, everybody kind of seems to be fighting each other and all, you know, oh, it's just horrible. You know, they've come back and they're awful. What should we do? Mm. My um, reply was nothing. Do nothing. They just, anything. These people have been away working from home with no challenges as such, right, in the workplace. Now come back to the office and they might have had a few people at home, they might have kids, or might have had a husband, a partner, wife, whatever it might have been at home, right? Now they're back in an environment with 30, 40 other people. First thing they have to find is their place yeah. in that group. If they had a place of leadership that they felt, it wouldn't necessarily be self-evident. So they have to reestablish so all these people were just, all they were doing was a normal response to the situation. They were re-establishing themselves in that environment. Mm. And once they had re-established it, the following Friday, um, we had a conversation. It was all back to as it was before lockdown. Mm. A normal response to a situation that had occurred. Yeah. It didn't need fixing. What it needed was for people to, to go through the process of Finding their finding their place again, and that's all. And and that happened as opposed to rushing in with a whole lot of. Um, and I'm not saying anything against um, uh, councillors and all that, uh, but having a whole lot of councillors who are coming in and, and that to try and fix something didn't actually need fixing. It ends up it, it can end up actually doing the detriment because it can plant more seeds into this. Is you know, telling you that this is the way that you are because of this instead of just letting you kind of figure your, figure out your own way in a way that's called resilience so yeah know, um christchurch earthquake second earthquake a lot of suck, a lot, um, I was, uh, a lot of um councillors came in with a lot of money and they did some really good work they came in here the and with the college psychiatrist um, uh, with them and we had a discussion about when psychiatrists were needed we predicted in three to five years after the earthquake yeah and what happened is when because what happened no through nobody's fault it was just the way it worked is that uh, some councillors came in and fixed problems for people. When they left, when the money ran out, for example, the people didn't ha hadn't actually developed any resilience at all because it was a resilience was in this other person. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, the, re the reliance, yeah. So they then became more unwell. Interesting. Went on, as opposed to the Kaikoura earthquake, right, where a whole lot of big rush of councillors didn't go in. And I've been approached for a few times, and I'm amazed at how well the community has come 
formulated their own community again. Why? Yeah. Because they needed to, and it's what we do as humans, is we um, adapt and change and 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 uh, cooperate and do all the things we need to do together to create our community again. That's what happened in Kaikoura. But it's interesting, and again, it's not against uh, councillors or anything else like that, but is a reality for a number of people that when you take resilience away from them, so you're the fixer, you're the fixer, I'm the fixer, yeah. when we take that away, what have we got left? Yeah. Right? And, yeah, so, so part of that is that we have to experience these things to develop our solutions and we go right back to choices and not go here, we need to develop other stuff. We can't do that if it's taken away by somebody yeah. else. You're following the logic now? Yeah, oh yeah, no, I totally follow it and I totally totally believe in believe in all of it. I believe that everybody everybody has a choice in every single matter. And it's just a matter of what they do with that choice and sometimes you need resources in order to figure out what choice you want to make. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And we overwhelm the resources by by um, having people going and trying to have normal behaviors fixed. No, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's never about, I mean, because I coach people all the time. I do a lot of the, you know, coaching and neuro-linguistic programming and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm not, fi I'm not fixing you. No, no, I'm letting no. you, I'm letting you uncover what you need <laughs> so, and what you want. One of the things I've always wanted to do, and, I, and, yeah, and I've planned for a long, long time, is to write a book. Yeah. But again, just being mad, it's a different book. So I write um, my story on one part on one part of the book and the other part it goes side by side is it's your story, right? Yeah. And I write the first um, paragraph to each chapter, but I don't number the chapters, right? And it's called My Story, Journey of Recovery. And you put your own name in and, and things, like things Māori and the spiritual side, it's, it's a book that will always grow big enough no matter how much you want to put in it, right? So my mm -hmm. story is a story, right? Just a story and it might be interesting to some people. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they'll all interpret it different ways. But this is about you, you develop your own book. Because one of the things I, um, I'm really clear on is I knew the answers all the time. I just didn't know I knew the answers. Exactly. And this is what I tell people all the time. I'm like, I'm not giving you the answers. I'm letting you uncover your answers within yourself because you have them. Yeah, we all have them. <laughs> and and that's and that was the essence of why I want to write the book if I get around to it. It was to say that I knew the answers from the time I started in the eminent service and when I was in panel beta and all that. I always knew the answers. I just didn't know I knew the answers. Yeah. Um, and we could always go and retrospect and stuff like that. And I guess and now I can I can pinpoint all sorts of parts in that life um, and bits and pieces. See photos of myself when I was really depressed. I got down to seventy two kilos and all that kind of stuff. I can I can map those all out now, but I knew the answers all the time. I just didn't know I knew the answers. Huh. Um, and which is the premise of of you start developing your own answers. You start developing your own stories. Um, that help then uncover, as you've done with NLP and all the rest of it, yeah. um, help to uncover the answers to the questions you don't actually know are questions yet. Yeah, it's, it's it's like when you do in NLP, there's a technique that's called emotional release technique. So you take the emotion that you want to, and I let people say they want to fix it. I'm like, okay, you're not going to fix it, but let, let's just give you, let you have that language because you're where you're at. And I, you yeah. have them. Yeah, it's all just language, and the language we use is what we get and what we focus on, but I let them go back, and we take them back to the original experiences of that emotion and that, and then 
you have them tell you what that emotion means back then to them. And they come up with all these negative things, like all these, and they're constantly, and I go, well, what are all the positives? And as soon as you start to unlock the positives and you put some meaning behind the positives, all of a sudden that emotion means something completely different. Anger can actually create and become something that you need, that you want, because it helps you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a response. And so, and so it, you just get, you shift the meat. And again, then you have choices. You can choose when you start to get angry, you can choose of this is destructive or this is actually empowering because it's, it's something that I need to focus on, on why am I getting angry, anger? Okay. Yeah. It's angry because I'm passionate about it, yeah. but that's because I want to make a difference. Not because, oh, it's destructive and, and I'm going to get angry. So I'm going to smash things and it becomes a destructive anger. It, yeah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, well, that's where, again, that's where what is so is, so what. Yeah, exactly. I get angry because of this, that, and the other thing, right? And that's what I get angry about. That's what is so, right? Mm. As you said, the choice is now the so what. Do I continue down that anger and go nowhere track? Or do I find a pathway around it kind of stuff? Whatever it might be. In other words, do I continue to run into the brick wall or do I take a breath and go, so what? There's a brick wall in the way. How? What are some ways I can get around it, over it, or whatever it might be, as opposed to trying to drive my head through it? That's kind of where that, that yeah, comes exactly. from. Exactly. I, I, I say a lot, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. It is. is. Yeah, and, it is. and everything's happening for you because it is what it is. It is. <laughs> It's just the same way of putting the same thing. So it now, is. It is. It's just different language, but saying the same meaning. And then you asked me earlier on about um, acceptance, right? Yeah. Fullness, right? What is so is, I, my diagnosis is um, PTSD with uh, chronic depression, right? And suicidal ideations and stuff. What is so is, that's who I am, right? Yeah. Now I just deal with the so what. Yeah. It took a yeah. long time to accept that that's who I am. Yeah. Um, and that's that acceptance part. So I don't like a lot of times what I see in myself, for example, but that is who I am and I've yeah. learned to accept it. How have I learned that? Because I've gained some knowledge, some understanding, more tolerant now and then think, but doesn't mean to say I have to like it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like, it's like myself, you know, I'm like, you know, I always have, I call them the demons, those little voices in your head that tell you those different things. And I'm like, and people go, oh, you know, can you get rid of them? I was like, no, they're part of me. I'd now dance with them. So many people try and get rid of them. They shove them behind, I call it, they shove them behind the door and they try to mute them and they try, and then they come back with a vengeance and they bust, bust the door down. And then you start to get into an even worse place. I was like, no, I, I you know, for a long time, I just listened to them. And just and that was my process. I just slowly listened to them, acknowledged them, made a choice of what I wanted to do with them, where I wanted to go, what I wanted from them. And then from there, then it was okay. Now I opened the door and kind of had conversations with them, and again got more re more clarity on what it was that I wanted. And now I dance with them, and I use the momentum of them to actually empower me and drive me to more passion and to be able to help more people and to make more of a difference. Because now I have the momentum of them where they're empowering me, going. Chris, you're never going to amount to anything. Oh yeah, you th okay, yeah, I know that. I know that you're there, but I now choose to dance with you and take that. I'm not going to amount to anything. To I'm going to amount to something, and this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> but again, it comes. People say. People often say, um, "Am I successful?" You know, now, well, define success. I'm still alive. Exactly. Right? 
that'll do. You know, that, <laughs> I don't have any money because people keep stealing it. But um, but I'm here, and and um, you did right. And so you so part of that management, for example, when I get triggered, um, yeah. when, it could be, when I came back to Christchurch last year, I was I was really unwell for what I call I call myself unwell. So I've been triggered all the time. So a lot of frontline work here. Yeah. So what I what happens now is that I just allow it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm feeling frustrated, annoyed, sad, and all the rest of it, and, and tearful, I allow it to happen. So what I end up doing is experience the emotion I wasn't allowed to experience it. Yes, exactly. It's the same exact thing. I shut all my emotions down, and they just disab- They actually destroyed me. They never shut down. They just get stuffed. No. And, and this is why I like, I'll have, I'll have conversations with people and they'll be crying and they're like, Oh, sorry, I'm crying. I'm like, it's awesome. You're crying. That's you releasing emotions and letting things out. And, Tears and, are amazing. <laughs> normal response to the situation. We found ourselves in who we might be. And so while you're uh, in, a, in a paramedic situation and, and you've got somebody here who's just killed somebody and you're trying to save their life, you're torn between why, why should I be trying to save this person's life? Right? Who's just done all these terrible deeds. Um, versus, um, I've got a job to do. Right? So, and you do the job, but it doesn't stop you having those feelings. Huh. So you hide them. So when you get triggered, then you can experience, I, and that's what I mean about managing it, is that I can experience those emotions that I really want to experience about yeah. the anger, the frustration, and all that other kind of stuff, as opposed to holding it. But I don't know, the problem is, I've been around a lot, I don't know when they're going to happen. And yeah. And I can be triggered um, anytime, you might say, and, and, and so on, um, at, at various times. Come on, does somebody just come on and say, yeah, come on. That's all good. Uh, so, so yeah, so, you know, and this is, this is where, you know, I always believe that you have to, you do have to look after yourself in that. And sometimes you have to take those breaks and you have to take a second and go, Ooh, actually like I'm watching a, a TV series on, on Netflix at the moment called Chicago fire. Now I was never a firefighter, but there's a lot of trauma stuff in there and I see it. And like last night I was watching stuff and I was like, Ooh, actually I'm getting triggered a little bit by this. Oh, it's, it's bringing up that memory of that job that I went to or that person that I that I that I dealt with or that thing that I went to. And I was like, that's a, it's all it's OK. It's good. It's good that my mind is releasing this stuff and letting me feel these emotions and get goosebumps and have little tears come up during a TV show that's all acted out because I've gone through it and it's going to make it makes me a stronger person. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so, no, that's awesome, Graham. How do people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about the four pillars? Um... It's just, I mean, just in my email, it's g.roper at extra, and I can just. Perfect. Cool. Well, we'll put your email in the in the description of this um of this yeah, podcast when it when it's all posted up, and um, yeah, I guess the only last question I have for you, which I always like to ask everybody, is what is your top tip to self happiness? Um, you asked me that, and that's um, when I put that down is is, is um, just remembering what is so is. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Awesome, Grandma. Any last words before we wrap up? No, no, that's great. Good to good to chat. Awesome, Graham. Well, thanks very much. And everybody, you know, there's been a lot today. Graham's given us a lot of insight. I've I've learned a whole bunch today, just seeing and looking at things in a different way, different perspectives, uh, and also just realization of a lot of uh, things I already knew. Uh, but 
just take one thing away and just start working on it. Just start, you know, living, living and, and accepting because when we take just one thing that we, that resonated with us, then we can actually, you know, develop and, and grow from there and then come back, listen again and, and, and keep going. Uh, if you haven't liked and subscribed, uh, you haven't, um, you know, if you don't follow us, make sure, you, you know, we, we've got lots of good episodes coming up uh, and lots of good episodes that we've already had. So thanks again. And thank you again, Graham. And um, till next time, everybody, um, we will talk to you again soon. And remember, keep training hard so that that mind, um, you know, when it's tested, it, um, it has it a little bit easier.